Peace to you. Welcome to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. We're going to pick up where we left off in the New Testament and the Gospels since it's Saturday. And we're up to the book of, of Luke. That's the third book in the New Testament. Uh, and we're at chapter 11, if you want to read along with me. Let's begin with verse 1. Um, sorry, I hadn't queued it up. One moment. Let's see. Here we go. Okay, now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So Jesus here is who we're bringing, who's being referred to and the disciples, not naming which one, asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And he's saying just as John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. So Jesus is going to oblige, verse 2. So he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's the first verse. So let's take that bit by bit. Jesus is telling them, and, and by extension us, how to pray. And so he starts out the prayer with addressing God as our Father, and whose place is in heaven. So not talking about the one who is your uh, daddy here on earth who uh, is responsible for you physically in that sense, but the one on high who's responsible for us as our father. The next part um, is hallowed be your name, saying reverence and respect due to your name. So um, pay God respect in the prayer as the second part element of our prayers to God. The third part, your kingdom come. So Jesus is saying that we have to pray for God's kingdom to come. That's what it says right there. And he told it tells us in another part of the Gospels that um, the kingdom of God isn't going to come with observation, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And that's in Luke 17, uh, 21. We haven't gotten to that cha chapter yet, but that's what Jesus says. So that kingdom is within us, and Jesus is telling us that we should pray that it should come. And the most the part that stands out to me the most about that this verse um in how to pray isn't the last part of that verse your will be done on earth as it is in heaven jesus is saying we have to pray for god's will to be done on earth just as it's done in heaven telling us that god's will is not the default uh in on earth it's the default in heaven clearly whatever god wants to be done or wills to be done in heaven is done but not so on earth we have to pray that God's will is done on earth. I think that's very significant because people assume, oh, well, if God wills it, that's what's going to happen. Oh, that would only happen if God wills it happen. No, not at all. You have to pray for God's will to be done on earth. It is the default in heaven, but clearly it's not the default on earth. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to pray for it. Verse 3, give us day by day our daily bread. So that verse is, um, that part of the, the, the prayer stands alone with its own verse that we have to pray that we should pray that our daily needs are met, our daily bread. Um, uh, I mean, that seems like it would be a given that God would know we're humans. We have to eat and we have to drink. Um, so, and yet Jesus is saying, let that be a part of our prayer, that daily our needs are met, and namely the primal need of food. Verse 4, and forgive us our sins. And one last thing about our food. Um, I think that's where saying grace comes in when uh, we eat. And that doesn't mean you have to 
make a big long prayer. You don't even have to make a verbal, uh, audible prayer when we eat. I just believe, and I do this, is in saying grace and giving thanks and uh, praying uh, for the food, over the food, about the food. When you're making the food, before you make the food, when you purchase the ingredients for the food. Because I personally believe and have seen, as we've seen, any one of those steps can get tainted from the food supply to the food preparation to the once you've eaten it and getting sick, gotten sick from it. So um, I definitely believe in praying uh, about our daily bread. Verse four, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So let's take that verse bit by bit. Forgive us our sins. That's pretty clear because, you know, everyone sins. Um, but the um, but it says also for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. That goes that sort of alludes to another teaching that Jesus tells us uh, in another part of the Gospels um, about forgive and you'll be forgiven. Judge not and you shall not be judged. So um, it, it's it's saying here I believe in verse four that we've done that part about um, not judging. So please don't judge us. We've done the part about being forgiving, so please forgive us. So it seems that in our daily prayer, in the Lord's Prayer as it's called, that should be another element of our prayer. Uh, and then the next part, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think that's a huge part there also, because it seems to me to be um, affirming the belief I have that uh, the paths we have in life are already predetermined. The, um, there are paths already laid out um, that lead upward or lead downward. And the, the choice is ours, but the paths are already there. If we choose to take a righteous path, it leads upward. You choose, and it's a choice, to not take a righteous path, to take an evil path, an unrighteous path, a wicked path, which many people do, and which we all do at some time or another in different paths we take. But they all, I believe, are already predetermined. And that's where the part about lead us not into temptation. I think it, what is being said there is that lead us not into that path that leads down downward instead, or the, and help us to avoid the temptation of taking that path, that path, those paths, because they're already laid out and the temptation is already there. The temptation to do the wrong thing, the temptation to do the wicked thing, the temptation to do the unrighteous thing is already there. It's already, the path is already laid out. Um, the elevator's waiting, but it's for us to choose whether we're going upstairs or going downstairs. And we're praying that we're not tempted to take the wrong paths. And then the last part about deliver us from the evil one. Um, in some of the Gospels, it says, lead us, it says, and deliver us from evil and the evil one. Here it's saying only the evil one. I believe they work together, the evil and the evil one, um, all together. It's delivering us from that evil, be it the evil one uh, or evil in general. Because like I said before, I don't know that the idea of what we think of as God is what we've always been taught or led to believe. The same thing with the devil. I don't believe that the devil, Satan, evil, is necessarily what we've been led to believe by popular religion that it is. Because like we've read, and God willing, we'll get to that point in this book of Luke, uh, when p two people passed away, and they're not parables, though some preachers will try and tell you they're parables, they're not parables. Jesus says it 
when he's talking about parables. He specifically says, let me speak another parable to you when he's talking parables. When he talks about the two people, Lazarus and the rich man who died, he didn't say those are parables. Those were people who existed. And when they both died, uh, both of them passed away. Neither one of them ended up, according to Jesus, in hell or in heaven. And neither one of them ended up in God's presence or the devil's presence. So uh, religion will tell you, um, and even in the Bible, another religion in the Bible that emerged after Jesus, Paul's teachings that to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. Well, that's not what Jesus says. And he gives us an example of those two people when they died. Neither one of them were in God's presence. Neither one was in the devil's presence again. And neither one was in heaven and neither one was in hell. And yet they both passed away. And then Jesus, one last thing, when he was on the cross and the person who converted at the last moment, um, the thief who was also crucified with him, when he, um, he before he passed away, he repented and, um, and confessed Jesus as his savior. I'm paraphrasing that, but that's what happened. And Jesus told him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't say everyone goes to paradise, otherwise he wouldn't need to say that. So clearly, everyone doesn't go to the same place. Otherwise, again, he wouldn't need to say that to that man because obviously they're both going to be there. And some preachers will try to lead you to believe that paradise is one place and there's a gulf between them and everyone goes there. That's not true at all. Um, Jesus gives us the example, again, of Lazarus and the rich man who both passed away. But why would paradise be a place where you're suffering? One of the people is in flames and burning. It's not identified as hell. But he is in flames and suffering and tormented. Um, and he can see where Lazarus is in comfort and uh, in Abraham's bosom, as Jesus calls it in uh, that chapter. I think it's chapter 16. Uh, but again, it's not heaven. It's not hell. It's not um, and it's, it's not identified as paradise. And then one last thing that we're on that subject about um, being absent from the flesh being present with the Lord. That again is not Jesus's teaching. That's another religion in the Bible's teaching. Um, and we know that it's also not true because when Jesus did pass away on the cross, he told the man who passed away also, who the, uh, the thief who converted, assuredly I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. So that means uh, paradise was the next stop for um, Jesus and the man who confessed um, Jesus as his savior. But it wasn't in the presence of God because we read in the Gospels when Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, he says, I have not yet ascended to my father. So that lets us know Jesus had died, three days had passed, and he still had not been to God. So it's a lie when religion tells you that that's where you go when you die. It's popular, but it's still not true, at least according to Christ. And if we're Christians, we're supposed to go by what Jesus says as our gospel truth. Um, verse 15, and he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. So Jesus is letting us know another, um, uh, giving us a lesson here on human nature. He's saying, if you have a friend who comes to you in the middle of the night at midnight asking for food, three loaves specifically. Verse six, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. So he's saying if a friend comes to you in the middle of the night and says he needs to borrow, get some food from you because he has a house guest, a friend who he needs to feed, but he doesn't have anything to feed him. Verse seven, 
and he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. So Jesus is saying, when that friend goes to another friend seeking food for his house guest in the middle of the night, his friend's going to tell him, uh, don't bother me. Um, it's already past my bedtime. Me and the kids are in asleep. He's saying that's how the friend will answer his friend who's seeking him in the middle of the night in his time of need for some food. Verse 18, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So Jesus is saying there, even though human nature's first inclination would be to even deny your friend the help they need if it's inconvenient for you, just to keep from being uh, annoyed by the friends constantly bugging you for the help, you might go ahead and help them. Jesus is saying that's how human nature works. So um, he's going to go further now in the next verse. Verse 9, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, not, and it will be open to you. So Jesus is saying there, it seems to me, saying uh, our efforts will be rewarded. Uh, in asking, there'll be a reception. In seeking, there'll be a discovery. In knocking, they'll be welcoming. Um, we've seen now in modern times where if you're a wrong color and knock on the door, you can end up killed because people will call the police on you. Police will show up and before they ask any questions, they'll end up shooting to kill you or arresting you for something you didn't even do just, just because you're knocking while black. Um, it's usually a black person who suffers those things, at least in America. Um, but what Jesus is saying, though, I believe, is in the divine sense, in our seeking from God, in um, being diligent in our uh, what we seek and what we request and what we what we put our hand toward in our efforts in um, pursuing righteousness. I think Jesus is saying there's a sure reward in it. Verse ten: For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. So that's the sure reward part. Now. Um, I guess what's also not said there is that it, it seems that it takes more than just asking sometimes because there's plenty of things I've asked for and not received. There's plenty of things I've looked for and not found. There's plenty of things I put my efforts toward and they've seemed fruitless. But I think what Jesus is saying here speaks to what um, another thing we've touched on in other, um, other readings here on The Naked Truth, that there are dimensions, that there are um, I guess what will be called in modern times um, um, alternate realities, but um, multiverses that we may not realize the real the manifestation of the things we seek and uh, ask for in this timeline, in this life, in this existence we're walking. But perhaps they are realized and manifested in another of our timelines and existences and dimensions where we also exist. And I know it may sound crazy, but aside from Christianity, aside from religion altogether, and they are two separate things, science, which is separate from all of those sorts of things of faith, says that there are multiverses, that there are multiple existences, uh, not just possible, but almost certainly likely, and even sometimes they believe provable, where um, something is affected, science believes that your, um, the outcome of things are affected 
even just by you noticing them, just by um, if you see something uh, that was already there and doing whatever it's doing, just because you notice it, just because you see it, the outcome of that thing, the path of that thing will change. Um, and that's a whole other teaching. And the science of it is obviously way beyond my understanding. But that's the basic understanding of it. And you could search it yourself and see. Just do a search on multiverses. Do a search on alternative universes on um, dimensions. And it'll get into it much better than I explain it much better than I can. But that's my basic understanding of how what Jesus says in verse 10 can be true. That even though we don't seem to always realize the manifestation of things we ask, seek, or uh, pursue here in this uh, timeline doesn't mean we aren't actually receiving them and experiencing them in another one that's existing right alongside us. We just don't perceive it. Verse 11. And one last thing on that. I know it sounds kind of out there and fantastic and everything, but that's science. And to me, that's also an article of faith. It's outside of the Bible, but it absolutely takes faith to believe all of that stuff too, just like it takes faith to believe much of what you read in the Bible. Verse 11, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? So Jesus is addressing human nature here also, that even just among wretched humans, if children ask you for something, any decent parent is going to try and get it for them, uh, whether it's food or, um, or um, you know, bread, fish, whatever the case may be. If your child asks you for um, some salmon, you aren't going to give them, um, I don't know, bricks to eat. Or if they ask you for uh, bread, you aren't going to give them some dynamite to chew on. You're going to give your child that presumably you care about since you have it in your world and in your life and under your care, you give your child what it is your child is seeking. Verse 12, or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? So even with as evil as human nature can be, if a child asks you for something as simple as an egg, you aren't going to offer them a poisonous insect that's going to kill them. Uh, at least any decent uh, parent in their right mind won't do that. Um, we know in modern times, parents do all sorts of things to the children they birth that are just downright evil. Verse 13, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus there is letting us know, just as evil and wicked as human nature can be, and we still manage to find a way to give the children we bring into the world what it is they seek, whether it's bread, fish, a toy, time together, whatever it is that your child is seeking, even as bad as human nature can be, uh, most human parents will try to provide for their child. Jesus is saying, God, who's only righteous, at least the way we're to understand and believe in God to be, would much sooner, much more readily uh, fulfill the desires of our heart, the requests of our lips. But, um, I say requests of our lips because remember, Jesus tells us, ask and you shall receive. That means, I, in my mind, don't assume anything because um, God doesn't assume anything about what it is we're seeking or needing or requesting. Obviously, emergencies 
and uh, sudden terrors pop up and we expect that God notices these things and will react to them. But um, generally speaking, I think what Jesus is letting us know is just like he gives us the example of when he encounters someone who's visually impaired and they're completely blind and um, asks and makes their way to Jesus and asks for his help. Jesus doesn't assume that what they want help with is their vision. Jesus doesn't assume that at all. Instead, he asks them, what is it you want? What is it you wish? What is it you seek? And I think that's showing us an example by example that um, we can't, we shouldn't assume anything and um, make sure that we include what it is that's on our heart, on our wish list, in our prayers, in our spoken, verbalized, audible words. Um, not necessarily audible, but in um, in our um, prayers and communications on high. Verse 14, and he was casting out a demon and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. So that part, this verse isn't red letter. It's the narrator, presumably Luke, but whoever has scribed it and passed it along, letting us know Jesus encountered someone who wasn't able to speak. The narrator, whoever is passed it along, is letting us know, at least according to them, the muteness, the inability to speak was attributed to demon possession. And that Jesus, in that one verse, saw it, handled it, cast it out, and healed the person. And that the people who witnessed it were amazed by it. Verse 15, but some of them say he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So um, Jesus's good, Jesus' good deeds were even disputed and being attributed to demonics. They're giving, they're saying that Jesus is handling, manhandling the demons um, by the power of demonics. Um, and I say that because, and I mean, in saying that, it reminds me of what we've read about Solomon. It's not all in the Bible, but in other books that didn't make it into the Bible, um, it's um, believed that Solomon, in, in some of his wisdom, is attributed to demonics, that he actually used different powers. And it sounds like Lord of the Rings type stuff, that he was able to wield power among the demons in getting them to do his bidding, uh, including building the temple um, that he built during his time. Um, so it seems to me that's what they're saying. They're saying Jesus is performing miracles like exorcisms of demons um, by using the power of demons to do it. And they're naming one demon specifically, uh, Beelzebub. Um, and Beelzebub changes its name. Um, I'm sorry. The name Beelzebub changes in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's Beelzebub with two A's and an L or balls above, however you want to pronounce it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but it's also someone that they worshipped in the Old Testament. Baal, master, is how it translates of Zebub, an area. So um, in, we've read it already in the Old Testament in those daily readings that um, that was one of the entities, deities, that some of the people were worshipping. And like we've said again and again, the Bible is full of religions, not just one, not just two, not just three. There are three main ones, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Catholicism. Uh, but of the three, the most minor, the smallest one is Christianity. The tithe of the Bible, those six books, like I've said again and again, are the only parts that are actually the uh, solidly Christian part of the Bible. The four books of the gospel, 
one chapter, only actually a few verses in one chapter in the book of Acts, and then some specious chapters in the book of Revelation. And I say specious because they don't always make sense. They don't always match up with how um, Jesus's a uh, Jesus way of speaking and the Gospels, but they are considered red letters, and they're said to be quotes of Jesus in in um, in Revelation. Uh, but the author of Revelation isn't um, known, not the same way the Gospels are. Um, but as always, it's an article of faith. Believe what you want to believe. But that's just the thing about the bells above. That's who they're giving credit to for the uh, casting out of demons that Jesus just performed. Verse 16, others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Um, so now Jesus has done the miracle of exorcism. He's um, gone around and preached and teached and taught and done miracles enough that multitudes are following him around to get some face time with him and get their hands on him, even just trying to touch the border of his garment to get healing. Uh, but that's not enough for the religious leaders. They still want to test. They still want to uh, basically see a magic trick to affirm their faith. Uh, otherwise, they won't believe. But surprise, surprise, they wouldn't believe anyway. One last thing about uh, the demons and Beelzebub and the ruler of the demons. We read, and I think it's Mark, that when they say that about Jesus using demonics, that it's by a demonic spirit that he's doing the miracles he's doing, Jesus identifies that, or at least that's when Jesus lets us know that's the unpardonable sin in blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And then the narrator of that um, uh, in that gospel, I think again, I think it's Mark, but don't hold me to that. I'm pretty sure it's Mark, though, um, says that it's because they said, he has uh, an evil spirit. Um, that that's why Jesus said what Jesus is saying is the unpardonable sin. And even though it's right there in black and white and red, uh, some churches, some preachers will twist it around and say the unpardonable sin is um, something altogether different. That's not even written there about um, uh, us in modern times being delivered up um, and. Um, and uh, testifying against the and speaking against the Holy Spirit. It's not what it says at all. That's not it doesn't even go align with what's being discussed there at all. But that's another chapter, another gospel, another uh, for another day. Um, just something to keep in mind because here it's at that same point now in this chapter where they're accusing Jesus of basically being demon possessed and that that's how he's manhandling other demons. Verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is to desolation, and a house divided against the house falls. So if you've read with me before, you understand why I've read it just as, it's, as it reads, just didn't read every part of it out loud. Because um, I don't want to be where the desolation is. And by saying brought to it, it implies that you're there at that desolation also. Desolation basically just means emptiness, uh, void, uh, a void. Um, it'd be like if a bomb hit somewhere uh, and it destroyed everything there. That's desolation. Or it could be out in the desert somewhere, out in the wilderness somewhere. Desolation, someplace remote and empty is what comes to mind when I hear or see the word desolation. So anyway, Jesus is saying there, it doesn't make sense that uh that a demon would be casting out another demon. 
that would mean there's civil war going on. Whereas instead, why would they? Wouldn't they be united for the same purpose of destruction? So it doesn't make sense that he'd be using demons to, um, uh, to war against other demons. Uh, and he goes further, the house divided against the house falls. Um, just like with civil war. If a country is at war with itself, which can happen, then uh, that country is destined to fall. Uh, and it seems that goes to what happened with the American Civil War. And um, you have two sides playing by two sets of rules. Just like in modern times, you have what you call the right, conservative right, uh, and, what's, um, and the left. Uh, as far as politics go. The left plays by rules of, oh, you have to be decent, you have to be polite, you have to take the high road if they take the low road. Well, that's all well and good, but if the other person is playing, other side is playing by different rules, you're setting yourself up to lose. And the Civil War is a good example of that. One side plays with chivalry, the other side plays uh, basically with the devil on its side to keep people saying it's in the name of God, but keeping people enslaved, keeping people uh, treated as second-class citizens, wielding power over people unrighteously. So then when they lose, instead of giving them the same punishment that they would have given if they had won executions for the opposing side, instead the opposing side was allowed to remain. So then you have things like the KKK pop up, you have the, the white supremacy continue, you have the Jim Crow laws and you have the continued oppression of people who were previously enslaved by law now being oppressed and all and enslaved because remember the Constitution still allows enslavement if you're in prison uh, another way. So you've rid of, uh, gotten rid of slavery one way, but by allowing the system that opposed in, in the Civil War, the South, to remain and not punish those who were treasonous and seditious and trying to overthrow the government, government, you allow that to remain, then you allow the snake's head to remain and the same system to be in place. And unfortunately, people on the left and on the right are perfectly okay with white supremacy, which is at the root of what's going on with things like the um, police brutality, but also the discrimination in housing, the discrimination in healthcare, the discrimination of every step along the way against people who aren't white, and then the the voice that tells them, well, why aren't you doing more? Why, aren't, why don't your people do better? Why haven't your people accomplished more? Slavery was over then. Why haven't you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps? Knowing good and well, all those systems that existed during slavery still remain just under a different name, and the oppression they uh, manifest still also remains. Uh, so, of course, how could you possibly reach your um, maximum potential when you're still being oppressed by the same systems that were fought over centuries ago or uh, a century and a half ago? Verse 18. Uh, they were in place, though, centuries ago. 1619 Project, great book, powerful read, interesting documentary. documentary. It should be taught in every school. It really should. Uh, but in places like Florida, everything is being done that can be done by one side to keep it from being taught. It's really scandalous and it's really anti-Christ because Jesus says us 
tells us, if you abide in my word, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, if people are hiding the truth from you intentionally, or suppressing the truth from you, how can you possibly ever be free? It's really sick. Verse 18, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. So Jesus is saying, if there's a civil war among the demons, how in the world could the demon kingdoms last? And we know that that, can't that that must be true, that there can't be a civil war there because the demonics, the evil spirits, the, the and even if you want to step outside of the spiritual um, aspect of it, the nature of evil still exists. So there can't possibly be a division there because wickedness still exists. Whether you believe it's the devil doing it or if it's just the human heart manifesting the evil through the human hands, uh, which is almost certainly what's happening, uh, there's no division there. So it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to be using demonics to manhandle demonics. Instead, they team up and accomplish total victory. Verse 19, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So Jesus is saying, and if, if it turns out that he is using demonics to manhandle the demons, to cast them out, to exercise them, to make them move from one person to another, if that is what he's using, then what is it that are hum the humans are using? What is it that the religion is using that's not working? Since we know they haven't been casting out demons, read the Bible from um, Genesis to Luke, where we're at now. And you'll see when the religious people encounter demons, they weren't casting them out left and right and sideways at all. Instead, they were being subject to them, being manhandled by the demons and the uh, evil spirits and so forth. So it doesn't make sense one way or the other that it's uh, evil that Jesus is using to, um, to cast out evil. It just doesn't make sense. Verse 20, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God, Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus is saying, if what he is doing is uh, in righteousness, then they better recognize righteousness is right there in their presence. If he's using the power of God um, to accomplish the miracles he's accomplishing, which even his enemies witness to and don't deny, they're not denying he's performing the miracles. They're just beefing with him for doing it, whether it be on a certain day of the week, that they consider off limits to do any work or doing it for whatever other reason they find opposition to, um, then that's what it is. It's not, uh, they're not accepting that it's actually the power of God present with Jesus to make the miracles happen. Verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. So Jesus is giving us an example of anybody with common sense if they're at home and uh, and uh, if they're at home and their house, oh, doors are locked, windows are secure, doors are, if their property is secured and everything's at peace, um, verse 22, um, then if, 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 verse 21, if someone's at home and their place is secure, they're resting easy, they're at peace, verse 22. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. So Jesus is saying, you might be at home and sitting comfortably, but if someone stronger than you, whether it be a burglar or be 
uh, law enforcement busts into your house, say they did Breonna Taylor and murdered her or took her life, if you prefer, since I don't know that they were ever actually convicted of it, even though it's right there on video, you're not allowed to call it murder if the people who do it are white and the victims are black. Whereas if the people who do it are black, like those five plus officers who killed uh, the most recent victim of police brutality, uh, one of the most recent, the most recent headlines, then they call it murder because all involved are black. The people who killed them are, or who committed it are black and the victim is black. So they call it murder right off. And that's on the left and on the right. But when the people who do it are not black, uh, people in uniforms uh, commit the same acts, um, but they're not black, then they don't call it murder. They say it's alleged. And uh, even though it's right there on video, just like with those, uh, the most recent one, they just don't call it what it is because there's protection for you if you have the right complexion. But if you don't, even if you're in a blue uniform, you don't get that protection. They go by what's clear and obvious in the videos that it's clearly murder. And they call it that and they don't care if you uh, would consider it slandered because they know what's going to happen and then the day is you're going to be convicted and the book's going to be thrown at you. But when you're not black, when you're uh, not, uh, when you are white, I should say, um, then you get a whole totally different uh, presentation of what's happened in media and um, and uh, in law enforcement. It's, it's really, really sick, but, but it's a definite double standard which you'll notice if you just pay a little attention to what happens with these different police brutality cases. Watch and see when the next one happens. God forbid there's a next one, but there almost certainly will be a next one. Um, look and see. When the victim is black, uh, it's a totally different outcome. When the victim is black and the officers who do it are black, it's a totally different outcome than when the victim is black and the person who does it, the officers, are not black if they're white. Watch and see how media and the law enforcement will cover it. They won't call it murder, even if there's video evidence of it. They'll always say alleged, all the way up until the time there is a conviction, if there's a conviction, because most of the times there's not a conviction. And then if you call it murder and uh, there's no conviction, then they actually empower the people who did the same act on video, killing people, They'll allow them to sue you for slander or whatnot uh, because they weren't convicted of the murder. Think of like that Kyle Rittenhouse um, seen on video with the guns and taking the lives, but you can't call it murder uh, because uh, he was not convicted of those of what happened on the video. And even when it happened on the video, they wouldn't call it murder. They'll just say alleged, even though you see it right there on video. It's really, really a sick system. And it's white supremacy. There's no other way to put it. It's clearly white supremacy. It's clearly a double standard. And it's it, it's clearly got to end. It's a house divided. It's remnants of the Civil War era, white supremacy, and terrorism of black people who are he brought here against their will as enslaved people. It's really, really sick. And I know I keep saying that, but I can't think of any other word for it other than sick. It's, and it's especially wicked to say it's a God-fearing Christian nation that allows and empowers such things. It's wickedness. Verse 21, when a strong, oh, so we read that one about this person at home 
chilling at ease in their house. But if someone stronger than you busts in your house and overtakes you, they'll take you down and everything they're with you. And that's what verse 22 is saying. Verse 23, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. So just like the demons are united in what it is their mission is, if you're going to believe in demonics, uh, which clearly uh, Christianity does preach or teach that it is a thing. But um, even besides the spiritual um, uh, element of it, a baseball team, a basketball team, a football team have to be united for the same purpose of winning. And if they aren't, they're going to lose. Same thing goes with Christianity. Either you're with Christ, and that would be the red letters that show the unity, or you're not. And if you're not, you're going to scatter. And what's going to usually cause that scattering is the confusion, the contradictions and the confusion. Whether it's the contradiction of uh, to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. Not a Christian teaching, but it is in the Bible. Um, and it does lead to confusion because if you're going to believe that, how can you possibly believe what Jesus preaches and teaches in Luke, for instance? Because that's not what Jesus says. So you're going to end up scattered. The confusion will cause a scattering. Um, but it is a choice. Verse 24, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. So Jesus is now um, explaining the pathways that spirits have. Um, maybe this actually alludes to, like I read, what like I was just saying, when he talks, when when he covers what happens to Lazarus and the rich man and the paths their spirits took once they passed away. Jesus is saying an unclean spirit, a demon, if you would, if you want to think of it that way, um, the paths that they have when um, they're not possessing someone. When someone's not being uh, wrestling with the demons in their own life, and um, it could be a spiritual demon, it could be some other demon like gambling or any other addiction you're dealing with. When you don't um, replace that, um, if, you, if you manage to wrestle it and um, get it out of your system, whether it's a, a, a spiritual demon or a, an addiction demon type demon, Whatever demon it is you're wrestling with, most people, at least I won't say most, but when people are going through things like 12 steps to get clean of addictions, they will usually tell you, you need to replace the addiction with something else healthy. And I think it goes that way with just about any other habit. If you're trying to break a habit like um, smoking or drinking or whatever the habit may be, you usually can't, if you can get it out of your system, and uh, not crave it anymore, you usually need to replace it with something healthy, something that will fill that void. Otherwise, you uh, end up with what Jesus is talking about here, I believe, in, uh, verse, in this passage. So um, Jesus is saying that spirit, once it's been cast out, it's going to wander through that uh, abyss, that emptiness, that void, that um, no man's land. Um, looking for some place to possess, looking for somewhere it can dwell. And when it can't find somewhere to dwell, it goes back to the place it was before. It goes it goes ahead and possesses the person where uh, it was plaguing and possessing and terrorizing and tormenting before. Same thing with alcoholism, same thing with uh, uh, substance abuse. 
if you um don't uh if you don't find something to do with that energy that you're putting into that addiction that habit then um you can almost guarantee that addiction that habit that demon is going to be right back plaguing you again verse 25 and when he comes and when he comes he finds it swept and put in order um hesitate with that verse because it says comes meaning uh, you're there with it uh, but since we didn't read it continually i think it'd be okay but if you're reading it continually i suggest caution in reading that out loud um, but what jesus is saying there is that the demon when it arrives back where it was before where it had been cast out and finds it empty and swept and put in order just like if you manage to Get rid of an addiction you had, a bad habit you had. If you don't replace that uh, habit, that in, use that energy you're putting into that habit into something else positive, something else healthy, then verse 26, then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So I probably got a little ahead of myself with that one. But that's basically what I was saying with replacing that addiction with something healthy. Because if you don't, you're going to be uh, wrestling with those same demons again, whether it's alcoholism or uh, sex addiction or um, substance abuse, whatever, gambling. There are lots of things you can be addicted to. You can even be addicted to food. So if you don't replace that, uh, use that energy that you were putting into that energy, I'm, I'm sorry, into that addiction, into that habit, feeding that demon, in other words, then one, you may, may be able to kick the habit and get rid of it in your life and wrestle with that demon and conquer it. But if you don't replace it with something healthy, in the case of uh, what we're reading here, Christianity, if you don't replace that, uh, that energy, if we don't place that energy into Christianity, then expect the evil to return and overtake you. And it's going to overtake you seven times stronger than it was before. Just like, just as if you may kick the habit of drinking or drugging. And then if you don't find some healthy way, a healthy outlet for that energy, then you'll probably fall into addiction again. And it's going to be much, much, much worse. And it'll probably even be fatal, like overdoses and such. Verse 27, and it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. So Jesus is saying, I'm sorry, not Jesus. That wasn't red letters, so it's not Jesus saying it. Someone in the crowd is um, basically shouting out to Jesus saying, wow, God bless you and God bless your mama who bore you. Um, she's calling herself being reverent and giving praise. But look at what Jesus says in response. Verse 28, but he said more than that, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So Jesus is saying more than God bless Mary, the mother of God, more than God bless her womb and breast for uh, nourishing and feeding you, Jesus. More than that, Jesus is saying even more than that, even more than Mary, the mother of God, Jesus is saying God bless us who hear the word of God and keep it. And when he's saying the word of God, that doesn't mean the whole Bible. It definitely doesn't mean uh, all that's in the Old Testament and all that's in the New Testament. No, 
He's saying the word of God, which is which are these red letters, as we Christians believe it to be, as Jesus tells us, his mission was to bring us the message of God. Hearing those words, hearing these words, hearing these words, not just hearing them, but also keeping them. In another gospel, it says, and do them. It might even be in this one. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. So that was, it was Luke 8, where Jesus said it previously. And now in Luke 11, he's saying it again. Hear the word of God and keep it. It's not just, it's not enough to just hear it. You have to hear it and do it. Just like in anything else. It's not enough to know the driving rules. You have to actually do them. You have to know, stop at the stop sign. Uh, if you know it, but don't do it, what good is that? You're going to cause an accident. And same thing with a surgery. You know you have to put the person under before you perform the surgery. Otherwise, they're going to be in agony and pain, and it's going to be horrific for them um, if you don't. So knowing it is nice, but you actually have to do it. You actually have to keep it. And in keeping it, that's knowing it, doing it, and keeping it, meaning practicing it, not just Oh, I'm going to remember it right now while I use it, and then I'm going to forget about it next time it comes up. No, you have to keep it. It has to be right there in our hearts. It has to be right there in our minds. It has to be right there in our hands. We have to be doing it. It's not enough just to know it. It's not enough just to hear it. it you have to do it. You have to keep it. And that, Jesus is saying, gets us a bigger blessing even than Mary, uh, the breasts of Mary. In the womb of Mary that bore Jesus our Savior itself, themselves. Verse 29, and while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. So now Jesus is calling out the crowd. He's saying this is an evil generation. And um, I don't know that he means just the people who are there present with him then or this generation of of creation of humanity because remember what jesus calls it when um what we think of as the uh second coming or judgment day or the apocalypse the end jesus doesn't call it um jesus calls it the regeneration uh when people are resurrected the righteous are resurrected and continue to live on jesus calls it the regeneration so I think, so I don't think we should limit the evil generation to just those people present with him right then. Um, I think he means generation of humanity, this generation cycle of humanity, these um, the last few thousands of years of humanity. It's evil, and Jesus is saying um, what one of the things, at least what he's identifying in this verse as uh, the nature of that evil is that it seeks a sign. It's looking for miracles. It's looking for God to affirm God's existence when um, what Jesus is saying, uh, just like Jonah in that tale with Jonah and the big fish or the whale, as it's usually called, um, it's going to be just like that. Um, and I think when Jesus uses that as an example of Jonah, it uses Jonah as an example. That doesn't mean that Jonah actually existed as a person in reality. It could be a popular tale that's lasted throughout time, just like uh, Santa Claus. It doesn't mean just because people know who Santa Claus is doesn't mean Santa Claus is an actual person that's climbing down in chimneys. And I know the whole tracing back to a person named 
Nicholas or the saint and all of that. Yes, I understand that. But I'm saying, well, let's use a different example then. Uh, Rudolph. Just because people know who Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is doesn't mean that Rudolph actually existed. But people still know it. It's just a pop culture reference. So I think possibly Jonah could just be a pop culture reference from back then. Doesn't mean that Jonah actually existed just because Jesus is referring to him. Um, and it is in the Bible, but we've read again and again on our other daily readings, things that are in the Bible don't always mean that they're true. Just because they're in the Bible doesn't mean they're true. And it absolutely doesn't mean that it's gospel. If it's not red letter, it's not gospel. Um, but what Jesus is referring to there is that Jonah narrative. And first, first, so let's take it bit by bit. First, he's calling them out for being evil, that it's an evil, wicked generation. And that though they're seeking signs, though they're asking God to jump through hoops and prove God's self, that's not going to happen. And he's saying the only sign um, that will be given is uh, the sign of Jonah the prophet. And he's going to explain it more now, verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. So again, whether the story of Jonah is true or not, in the story, that's what Jonah's existence was. That's what Jonah's experience was about. It was to be a sign to the people he was to deliver the message to, the Ninevites, to help rescue them. And then eventually they still ended up being conquered. But um, the Jonah narrative was for that purpose, so that people would recognize his experience and use that as a sign, use that as their warning, and use that to change their ways. Jesus is saying, similarly, that's the sign. Jesus has shown up. That's the sign. Asking him to jump through hoops is ridiculous. They've witnessed the miracles. They've seen the feedings. They've heard his preachings. They've seen, uh, they've seen people be raised from the dead. To still expect a sign is ridiculous. Verse 31, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So this verse is reflecting on what we've been reading, what we, we actually just covered in our other daily readings of the Old Testament, as we call it, um, of the queen of the south. Her name was Machidash. Forgive me, as always, if I mispronounce any of these, please. Um, but her name, um, the, queen, Southern, the queen of Ethiopia, named Makeda, showed up to see Solomon. And it's not in the Bible. Her name isn't in the Bible. Um, and what happened between them isn't in the Bible. But it is absolutely in other documents outside of the Bible, historical documents, that Solomon and her hooked up and she got pregnant. And she birthed him a son. Um, and again, forgive me if I mispronounce the name. I think it's Menelik. Um, and he became a king in Ethiopia. And his king line, his uh, dynasty, lasted all the way up until modern times, 1975, I think it said, in the 1970s. Uh, descendants of his, of theirs, of Solomon and this queen that Jesus is now mentioning, existed all the way up until the 1970s. So um, that's the queen that's being referred to here, the African queen that went to see Solomon. That's who Jesus is referring to here. And he's he's referring to that, um, that time when she came from um, so far just to visit with Solomon and hear what it is he had to say. She brought all kinds of uh, rich gifts with her. 
to give to him. And he gave lots of different rich gifts to her as well as uh, a son, according to, uh, again, scriptures outside of the Bible. Um, but whole other religions, uh, the Solomonic dynasty in Ethiopia is um, is uh, documented and still, uh, like I said, up until modern times. So um, that's what's being referred to there. And I think, again, it's white supremacy that kept, keeps her from being mentioned um, in churches in modern times that um, uh, keeps her name and keeps their, the son that she had with him from being more prominent in um, other religions in Western, so-called Western religions in modern times, just because she's black, just because she's from Ethiopia. And it leaves out the fact, it overlooks the fact, it whitewashes the fact that all of the people were in Africa for 400 plus years. And so it assumes that those people also were light-skinned or of a certain complexion, when that's a ridiculous assumption since all of those narratives were happening in the Middle East, where there are no, at least there are very, 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 very few blonde-haired, blue-eyed people being born, especially way back then before colonization and everything. It doesn't make any sense except for white supremacy and whitewashing things. And again, as always, this isn't... These aren't statements against white people at all. These are statements against white supremacy because it's ignorance and it's ridiculous to assume things like that, that everyone in the Bible, all the good people are white and all of the uh, anything bad had to be black. It's just nonsense. And yet it's what religion does and reinforces again and again and again. So I just hope if you happen to be white, please don't take offense at these things because they're not statements against white people. Their statements against white supremacy and how ridiculous it is to keep such a system alive when uh, clearly we're all God's children. We're all God's creations. So what sense does it make for someone to be exalted above another because of the complexion we had no choice in or oppressed over another because of a complexion we had no choice in? It's nonsense. Anyway, back to here. Um, so that's what Jesus is referring back to, the fact that uh that's queen of the south came from so far just to get a word with solomon and now they have the privilege of having someone greater than solomon they have the savior himself christ the messiah right there with them uh the greatest the goat the greatest of all time right there with them uh and they're still looking for signs looking for him to perform tricks looking for him to jump through hoops verse 32 the men of nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is saying when that regeneration happens, in that judgment day, in that moment of truth, that apocalyptic moment where you do have to face the music, Jesus is saying in that judgment, that queen of the south that heeded the words of Solomon, came from, from so far to hear what it is Solomon had to say and valued what he had to say, is going to condemn this generation, again, it doesn't mean it's, I don't think it's limited to the generation of people who were around when Jesus walked the earth. I think it's saying this generation of humanity is going to be condemned for the faithlessness, for the wickedness, for the disbelief, the lack of faith. And he, Jesus is also saying the men of Nineveh, the people who were rescued by Jonah's message, are also going to rise up in the judgment and condemn this generation for its lack of faith, for its wickedness. So, um, uh, because just like they had Jonah there delivering the message to them, and that was enough for them to heed the message, 
and change from change their ways. The generation Jesus is around then have the Savior right there with them. Uh, and rather than hear the message and heed it, are going to end up rejecting him, the message, God, and crucifying him. Verse 33, no one when he's lit a lamp puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on the lampstand, and the, that those who come in may see the light. So Jesus is saying, just like you turn on a light to dispel darkness, uh, you don't light a candle and put it in the closet and then close the door, and then you're outside of the closet where the light is so you can walk around in the dark. It doesn't make sense. You light a lamp so that you can see. Um, you don't hide the light. Verse 34, the lamp, uh, so similarly, if you have the light uh, of, of Christianity, in this case, the lamp, the, the light that Jesus brings uh, with uh, Jesus' teachings, you don't hide it. You're supposed to show it. It's supposed to be visible, um, not just in your words, thumping a Bible just to make noise with your Bible. It's supposed to be visible to others in your actions in your deeds. That's where it's also supposed to be visible. Um, verse 13, um, I'm sorry, verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 34, the lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. So Jesus is saying there's the potential for both. We have the potential to have an existence full of light, righteousness, uh, or you have the potential to be full of darkness, wickedness. Um, and either way, the potential is there. Verse 35, therefore take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. So uh, Jesus is saying there, be sure that what it is we're calling our light, what it is we're using as our guide, in other words, our map, our road map to salvation, our path, again, those paths already predetermined. Be sure that the path we're using, the light we're using on our path is actually light and not darkness. Be sure we're being guided by righteousness and light, not guided by something wicked and dark. Verse 36, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part of God, the whole body will be full of light as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. So Jesus is saying if we're if we're diligent to make sure that what we fill ourselves with is righteousness, is light, not darkness, not wickedness, then our whole body, our whole existence will be full of that light. Um, but again, it's a choice and it's something we have to diligently attend to, it seems. Verse 37, and as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. So now Jesus has been invited to dinner with someone are invited to to meet, to eat with someone. And he's accepted the invitation and gone in to eat. Verse 38, when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. So it didn't cover it in the previous verse, but we'll cover it now. The Pharisee, uh, Pharisees are um, the religious leaders. They're what we think of as the modern-day Bible thumpers. They're the church in, um, in um, plain English. It's the religious leaders. And that's who's invited Jesus to come in and eat. And what has he done? He's done what they do. They're the religious law enforcement. They, in the Old Testament, laid down the law, even though they consider themselves exempt from it, just like law enforcement in modern times, with that whole um, immunity to the law 
uh, that they're paid to enforce makes no sense. Same thing with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the uh, religious leaders, even in the Old Testament. They are enriched, paid to uh, lay out the law for the people to, to follow while they themselves are exempt from it and actually break many of those same laws that they're preaching to people are supposedly from God. Yet, if they're from God, why aren't you keeping those laws? If Just like they with law enforcement in modern times. If the laws are, if everyone is equal under the law, uh, justice for all, then why would they be exempt from those same laws? It makes no sense at all, except that it's wickedness. That's the only way it makes sense. It's hypocrisy and it's wickedness. The same thing that the Pharisees love. Um, and so that's what they're doing. They're enforcing their law. They're looking to see where it is they can cite Jesus for breaking their laws. The same way law enforcement will set up a speed trap and see how you're going to break their laws so they can cite you for it and be enriched by it. So similarly, the Pharisees have already noticed, oh, we've noticed he's broken their law. He's not washed before dinner. Verse 39, and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees made the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. So Jesus is saying there, the religious leaders, the authorities are all about appearances. They're all about people considering them to be righteous because of how, because of the act they put on, the theater they perform, whether it's by their costumes, the long robes, or the headdresses, or the, uh, in modern times, the, the collar, or the habit, or uh, whatever it is that they're putting on to show, hey, I'm that religious person, I'm your religious leader, I'm righteous, look at me, whatever it is that they identify themselves as being holier than thou, Whatever that is, that's what it's about for them. That's what it is. That's what's important to them. Making the outside of the dish look clean. Making themselves look righteous on the outside. But actually on the inside, Jesus is saying they're actually full of greed and wickedness. The greed, because they're just enriching themselves, just like I just said, how law enforcement in the Bible and in modern times does. And wickedness, just like how in the Bible uh, and in modern times, law enforcement does. The religious law enforcement in the Bible would enrich itself and be committing wickedness, uh, whether it be the telling people that uh, you're not supposed to have interracial marriages, yet they do that, um, and fine you for breaking their laws, or in modern times where you're not allowed to shoot people and get away with it, yet law enforcement shoots people unarmed, fleeing, obviously not a threat, and they get away with it, but they don't actually get away with it. They get away with it with man's law, but in God's eyes, you're not actually getting away with anything. It it will become, I believe, nothing but one more demon that's going to haunt you and possess you and hunt you down and plague you. And unless you do something about it, it's going to return with seven more spirits with more wicked than itself and continue to plague you as well it should because you're paid to, you're enriched to, in, uh, lay down a law and enforce it, not lay down a law and break it. Same, whether it be the religious laws and religious leaders or the civil laws and uh, law enforcement there in uniforms, the so-called Blue Lives people, the Blue Lives Matter people who are completely silent about January 6th. They aren't out crying out that Blue Lives Matter, even though uh, officers are being attacked then. 
It's really just one more cover of white supremacy. It's one more thing that's just sick about this society. But Jesus is calling it out. He's calling out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and how they do nothing but uh, put on an act of righteousness while they mislead the people with wickedness. Verse 40, foolish minds. Did not he who made the outside made the inside also? So Jesus is saying, it's ridiculous. It's foolish to think that cleaning the outside, making the outside look righteous and clean is enough. That'd be like you um, going to your dishes, going to your sink and getting a, and getting something, wanting to get something to drink. So you take a dirty cup out of the sink and you wash the outside of the cup and then you just pour whatever it is you're going to drink into the inside of the cup that you didn't bother to clean. You pour something um, you're going to ingest into a filthy cup on the inside. Would you actually drink out of that? Almost certainly not. If anything, you'd make sure the inside is clean first, regardless of what the outside is. But you for sure want the inside to be clean because that's what you're going to ingest. That's where what you're going to ingest is going to go. Similarly, that's what this self-righteous, hypocritical act of um, pretending to be righteous is about. That's what Jesus is calling calling out. He's saying, just like there's an outside, there's an inside. So if you're going to make sure the outside is clean, how is it you're going to neglect the inside? Verse 41, but rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. So Jesus is saying the way the religious law enforcement works is as long as you make an offering to them, a, a, a gift, a sacrifice, a tithe, as long as you break them off, then they don't care what you do. They'll consider it righteous. They'll give you a okay. They'll give you a check mark. They'll put a star next to your name. And we see lots of religions work like that. Um, I, I didn't realize it because it's not my religion, but another friend of mine who um, went through a divorce, he says that his religion, and if you're of that religion, you probably know it, they'll absolve you of the divorce as long as you make a gift to the church. They'll um, make a, give you a clean state slate and allow you to marry again. They'll act like it never even happened, but you do have to give that gift to the church. You have to enrich the priest. That's not what Jesus says to do, even though they say it's a Christian church. It's not. It's a whole other different religion that attempts to go under the cover of Christianity. But just like we've read again and again, the things that Paul teaches and Catholicism, they're not Christianity. Feel free to believe what you want. That's up to you. But you'd be wrong to believe that it's Christianity. Just like we've read again and again. If they're not red letters, which they are not, then it's not Christianity. The things Paul taught are completely different than the things Jesus taught. And yet people will conflate them both as Christianity. They are not. Uh, verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and root and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So Jesus is saying what the religious leaders focus on is that gift. They focus on that enrichment, on that citation that they give you when you break their rules um, and you paying it off, just like you may get that speeding ticket. As long as you pay it off, they're all good. They don't mind. They'll give you a clean slate. Same thing with the religious leaders. You, They cite when you break their rules and then you pay it off with a sacrifice. In modern times, it's money, generally speaking. In the biblical times, it was a goat, a sheep, a cow, a chicken, whatever it is that the uh, they laid out for you to pay off the offense with. 
and then they give you a clean slate and say you're all good. So um, Jesus is saying, yeah, you'll do the same thing of um, tithing. Tithing is giving that tenth of mint, rue, and all manner of herbs. So um, they'll focus on that tithe. They'll focus on that offering. They'll focus on that enrichment and forget all about what God actually requires, justice and love, justice and love of God. They'll ignore all of that altogether. Jesus is saying you should do both. You should make sure you see about the justice and the love of God. And also, if you're going, also tend to the tithe. Also do something about the tithe. Also make sure that the place where you're receiving spiritual enrichment at is enriched. Make sure you do also pay off that speeding ticket, but not just the speeding ticket. Make sure you also realize what it is you actually did wrong, where it is, where it is you actually went wrong, um, where it is you actually failed, excuse me. That the speeding could cause a, a death, could cause your own uh, a crash. It could cause a lot of harm. So it's not enough to just pay off the citation. It's not enough just to give the tithe. You should, yeah, pay off the citation. You should, yeah, give the tithe, make the offering, but should also look at the bigger picture of things and realize that there's also an issue of justice that needs to be tended to and the love of God. And that those are the primary things that need to be done first. And then also tend to the other things. It doesn't have to, they aren't mutually exclusive. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So Jesus is saying, woe to them. Uh, God help you because what you're all about are those appearances. You're about making the outside of the cup clean. You're about people looking at you and assuming you're righteous because of your garb that you have on, the outfit, the collar. That's what you're focused on. You're all about people say, hey, there's that preacher. Hey, there's that pastor. Oh, there he is. And all of that. You're all about the appearances and um, being recognized uh, wherever you go uh, for that appearance of righteousness. But Jesus is saying, woe to you for that. Verse 44, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. So Jesus is even is saying it's even worse than, than we've already read. They're actually dead men walking. People don't even realize that the people they're paying homage to in the marketplaces, in the so-called holy places, in churches, in mosques, and synagogues, and temples, Wherever it is they're going to meet to try and get closer to God, they think that they're uh, that that's enough that the people are giving recognizing them as righteous and holy. But in reality, Jesus is saying the people who are doing that don't even realize they're just walking over dead men. They they're it's just like as if you're walking uh, over graves, a cemetery full of graves that aren't marked. You don't you just don't realize it. You're walking, you might be think you're walking through a park, like that movie, The Exorcist, not The Exorcist, Poltergeist, where they build all these beautiful new homes, but don't realize that the homes are built on top of people's graves and that that's actually wickedness and it comes with a price. He's saying similar, I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Similarly, people think that they're taking part in something righteous and good and fabulous, but in reality, there's nothing but death there, nothing but death and darkness and the grave. Verse 45, then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. So now uh, one of the teachers in the crowd is catching feelings saying, wait a minute, Lord, you're calling us out too. Uh, and so they don't feel, they're not happy about that. They're trying to tell Jesus, wait a minute now. Verse 46, and he said, woe to you also, lawyers, 
for you load men with burdens hard to bear and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers so that goes to that verse goes to what we've uh, been discussing again and again and again on our other daily readings here on the naked truth where the religious law enforcement lay out all these different statutes and ordinances and things all apart from the ten commandments those original big ten that moses was given according to the narrative on the mountain just those ten suddenly after that religion stepped in and organized religion stepped in that um attempts to herd the people into believing all sorts of other things about um that weren't given with those ten commandments things like uh if you touch something then you're making it unclean that's a citation you have to uh, make a sacrifice to make that right ridiculous things like uh um well i consider them ridiculous you know believe what you want to believe things like a woman is unclean if she's on her period and if she touches anything that becomes unclean too and of course those are citations you have to make those right make a sacrifice come out your pockets um but not just those things all sorts of other things uh a man if he uh, if he ejaculates uh and if he touches that ejaculate he's become unclean if he touches anything after that it becomes unclean and of course, you have to make those things right with making sacrifices, enriching the religion. It's nothing but turning God's house into a marketplace, the thing that Jesus flipped tables over. It's the same thing that Jesus is calling out here, that that's what religion does. It loads you with all sorts of dogma that they aren't going to bother to try and adhere to, but they are going to certainly keep an eye out for you when you break it so that they can cite you for it, and then you'll feel compelled um, by that organized religion to enrich them and make it right. It's not righteous at all. Verse 47, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. So Jesus is saying, God help you. you you're, doing, you're continuing in the evil footsteps of your predecessors. You're building tombs to make it look righteous. Like, oh, this, might, this is the Martin Luther King monument. Uh, but your predecessors, your... Um, fathers grandfathers are the ones who tormented and killed them it's the same thing with the with the prophets the their descendants are building monuments and tombs to the previous prophets that were just about to in our other daily readings we haven't really gotten to them yet um they tormented them chased them out of towns stoned them um did all those things to them but then build monuments to them and considered all oh, that makes it righteous then but in reality verse 48 in fact you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers for they indeed killed them and you build their tombs so jesus is saying what you're actually doing in building those monuments to people who were persecuted and tormented and murdered by your forefathers what you're actually doing is completing the sentence you're doing what it is you're finishing what they started building a monument to martin luther king without actually changing the wicked system that killed him um is doing nothing but um, finishing what your fathers did. It's not righteous, it's actually wicked, and woe to you for it. Similarly, same thing Jesus is saying with the prophets. Verse 49, therefore the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute. So Jesus is now saying, calling out the history of people and the fact that um, again and again, People who were righteous in God's eyes doesn't mean they were perfect, doesn't mean they didn't sin, but they were righteous in their approach to God and the kingdom were sent again and again and again 
to testify to people, to try and lead people on a righteous path. And instead, what do they get? Treated badly, killed and persecuted, just like MLK, just like many others, um, treated badly for their efforts and doing nothing but trying to lead people to God, not going around killing people, not going around molesting people, not going around starting wars, not going around funding wars, not going around funding the military industrial complexes that profit off of wars, not doing any of that stuff, just going around speaking a word to get people to go and look to God gets them killed. Um, that's not righteous. Uh, verse 50, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. So that's what makes me believe that Jesus isn't just talking about the people who are walking, who will walk in the earth when he walked the earth in his ministry, when he says the word generation. I think he means this generation, this cycle of human humanity that's been created, this um, multi-millennial creation cycle of humanity, that there'll be a judgment day. And perhaps that's how it's worked for um, millions and millions of years um, that there's been a generation of humanity that began with a few, grew to billions, maybe even more than that, and then at some point collapsed on itself and ended up in destruction, then in God's cycle gets regenerated again and starts again. Um, I think that's what Jesus is saying when he's talking about a generation. He's saying, because he's going all the way back to um, to um, Abel. That's like um, Cain and Abel, Abel. That's Adam and Eve's kids way back then. So we know he's not just referring to the generation that's walking with him right then. He's referring to the, from the beginning in the Bible generation um, when he says generation. So I think he's talking about I think he's talking about more than just those people who walked there then with him. Um, did we skip one? Verse 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar. Well, we didn't read that one. Okay. So verse 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. So there, Jesus is reflecting again, all the way back to Abel, to Cain and Abel, Abel, to um, Zechariah, which was um, just before uh, Jesus' uh, ministry, Jesus and John the Baptist ministry in the New Testament is documented. Zechariah was one of the last Old Testament, as we call it, prophets, who was persecuted and then murdered right there in the temple by the same, uh, not the same people, themselves, but by their predecessors of the same religion, same religion Jesus was born into, the same religion John the Baptist was born into, not the same religion that Jesus preaches and teaches, just the one he was born into. Just like we've, like I've said before, I believe that's how it is for um, all of us. We, that when Jesus gives us the parable of the sower, spreading the seeds around, that um, I believe that's what Jesus is saying in that parable that people get exposed to. The realization that there is a God in many different ways, in many different religions, whether it's Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Catholicism, or outside of those religions altogether, get experience and the knowledge that there's something bigger than what's here.
there is a hereafter, there is a spiritual element, there's a supernatural realm, there's another dimension that exists. People get exposed to that in many different ways. They don't necessarily stay with that same way they were exposed to it, that religion they may have been born into, any more than Jesus stayed with the religion he was born into, but get exposed to righteousness, godliness from that source, but then have the choice, the option, the the, the ability to expand further and realize um, the actual way, truth, and life to righteousness, to God, to salvation. I think that's what Jesus is pointing to here um, with um, with um, the fact that all the way from Abel to all the way to Zechariah, um, people have the options, people have the exposure to the realization that there is a God um, not that everyone will accept it, but do at least get that seed of faith. Um, but that seed won't always grow into maturity or much less bear fruit. Um, but Jesus is saying it's going to be required of this generation, the bloodshed, the wickedness, the evil of rejecting the righteous message that is presented to people. Um, instead of just rejecting it and moving, going on about your business, rejecting it and then violently reacting to it. The same thing that the right wing does in America in modern times. There will be a price to pay for it. Verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who are entering in, you hindered. So Jesus is saying, God help you, the lawyers, the people who who lay down the law and incite people for it, for breaking it. He's saying, woe to them also, because... The actual truth, the actual righteous way, the um, knowledge, the key to knowledge to know what's actually what God's will is and what's actually righteous. They know what it is, but they aren't bothering to share it. They're taking it away so you don't know it, so they can put the blinders on you and keep you herded and into a certain belief system that will only enrich themselves. It's really, really wickedness. And Jesus is saying, they're not going to make it in heaven with that. They're not going to make it into the kingdom of God. They're not going to find salvation with that. And not only that, they're they're not going to make it, but they're also, to add insult to injury, blocking other people from finding that righteousness, that salvation, that truth. It's outrageous. It's scandalous. Verse 53, and he said these, and, he, and as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things. So he took them off. The religious leaders are upset. They got their panties in a bunch, and they're uh, going off and and trying to find however it is they can to contradict him and to clown him for his preaching and him calling them out. They're not taking it laying down. Verse 54, and the scribes basically are just like the ones who write it down. It would be the equivalent of the mainstream media in modern times. The people see what's going on and document it. That's what the scribes are. That's what scribe means to write. So um, the religious leaders, along with the writers, the um, the scribes and Pharisees in, in this verse uh, are the equivalent of uh, the religion, church, if you would, in modern times, and mainstream media using a coordinated effort to keep people, the truth hidden from people, and um, not entering into light themselves, but also 
forcing other people to live in darkness. It's it's really wicked. Um, verse 54, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. So again, are the religious people are trying to save souls? Are they sweating themselves silly trying to lead people to God? No, they're sitting around watching to see how they can catch you in something, catch Jesus in something he says um, so that they can accuse him. That's what they do. It's their law that they're enforcing so that they can be enriched by it. Whether it's a cow, a chicken, a goat, a sheep, money, bread, wine, oil. We've seen in our other daily readings, those are the things that they require when they cite you for breaking the different religious regulations that they laid out. That Just like Jesus said, they're exempt from. They don't bother to adhere to them at all. They won't lift those burdens with one of their fingers, but they will quickly point it out when you break it so that you can enrich them by paying off with a sacrifice, paying off with the tithe, whether it's mint, rue, anise, cumin, money, a goat, whatever the case may be. That's what they're focused on. They've turned God's house into a marketplace. Again, the thing Jesus did not approve of. And the modern equivalent would be bake sales and so forth that churches do in modern times. You're not supposed to be doing financial business in God's house. God's house is supposed to, about, supposed to be about leading people to God, showing people away the path to get to God, to have a closer relationship to God, not make sure you have money in your pocket before you show up so that when the basket gets passed around, you have something to put in it. And if you don't, stay home or at least stay out. That's not what it's supposed to be about at all. But that's exactly what it's about with modern religion, religion in general. Um, and take a look at the televangelists if you don't believe me. Um, but that's actually wicked. And it's the thing Jesus is calling out in this chapter. But this chapter is over. That was the last verse. So that's where we'll end this reading. I know it was a long one. Appreciate you joining me for The Naked Truth. I hope it's a blessing for you. And I hope you'll join me again. I love you. God bless you. See you next time. Peace be with you.